0: are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dondremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. Today's episode of Lighthearted is devoted to a lighthouse that we're very devoted to, Whaleback Lighthouse, just a few miles from here in Kittery, Maine. Cindy, your operations manager for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, a chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation, also known as ALF. Whaleback Lighthouse has been owned by ALF since 2009. It's one of 17 lighthouses under the care of the organization. Our featured interview in today's episode is one of the last keepers of Whaleback Lighthouse, Jim Pope. Jim was a Coast Guard keeper at Whaleback from 1960 to 1962, and he still lives in the area in Elliott, Maine.
1: Which is why he's known as the Pope of Elliot.
0: That's right, Cindy. Could you help me give our listeners some historic background on Whaleback Lighthouse?
1: Sure, Jeremy. The jagged ledge known as Whaleback or Whale's Back lurks menacingly on the northeast side of the entrance to the Piscataqua River, approximately a half mile south of Garish Island, part of the town of Kittery. Portsmouth, New Hampshire, on the Piscataqua River, was established as an important port for shipbuilding and trade before the American Revolution. Wrecks occurred around the ledges at the mouth of the river with sickening regularity.
0: In April 1821, the schooner President, heading to Thomaston, Maine from Boston, struck the ledge. The vessel and its cargo were a complete loss. As the crew and passengers struggled in the waves, several boats full of soldiers arrived from Fort Constitution in Newcastle, New Hampshire. Most of the would-be rescuers opted not to get too close to the ledges in the heavy seas. According to a newspaper account, Corporal George Macaulay asked his crew, Shall we save them or perish in the attempt? The response was unanimously yes, and seven people from the wrecked vessel were soon rescued from certain death.
1: In February 1828, the sloop Aurora Bartlett from Newburyport ran into Whaleback Ledge, and the Portsmouth Journal asked, How many more wrecks must be made before Congress will make an appropriation for a lighthouse? Three congressional appropriations were made, totaling $20,000. The first Whaleback Lighthouse, a 38-foot stone tower on a stone pier, went into service in September, 1830.
0: It was painfully clear that the tower had been poorly built. It leaked badly in storms and heavy seas. Some wooden sheathing added around the tower helped the problem of leaks, but the first keeper reported that the tower rocked and shook increasingly in storms. Stephen Pleasanton, the treasury official in charge of the nation's lighthouses, wrote in 1842, quote, I am in daily expectation of information that the present building has been demolished by the force of the sea, unquote.
1: Storms in 1869 caused cracks in the tower and Congress appropriated $70,000 for a new lighthouse in 1870. Although it was far from perfect, the first whaleback lighthouse lasted 42 years and has been cited as the first successful wave-swept lighthouse in the United States. The new tower was constructed of granite blocks dovetailed together in similar fashion to Minot's ledge light in Massachusetts and England's Eddystone light.
0: General James Chatham Duane, engineer for the lighthouse board's first and second districts, was involved with the design. The granite came from Biddeford, Maine. At the time it was built, the focal plane height was reported as 68 feet, but the height is given as 59 feet on recent light lists. The new lighthouse went into operation in 1872. The original tower remained standing next to the new one for a few more years.
1: In the summer of 1878, a new cast iron tower was built just to the north of the 1872 lighthouse to serve as a fog signal house. The tower, about half as tall as the lighthouse, was surmounted by a long iron pipe and a third-class fog trumpet that emitted an eight-second blast every 30 seconds. The original lighthouse was torn down by June, 1880.
0: The light was automated and the station was de-staffed in early 1963 and the Fresnel lens was replaced by rotating aero beacons. The cast iron fog signal tower was torn down in 1969 The active navigational light is now provided by a solar-powered VLB44 LED optic. In 2009, under the guidelines of the National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act, ownership was transferred to the American Lighthouse Foundation. ALF has restored the ironwork at the top of the tower, weatherproofed the structure, replaced broken glass, and repaired the door and windows.
1: When the Coast Guard demolished the fog signal tower in 1969, they also removed the boat landing slip. Today, there's no place to land a boat other than wet, jagged rocks. ALF has worked with a local marine engineer on the design of a boat landing system and is working on securing funding for the system, with plans for more restoration and public access down the road.
0: A few months ago, I had a chance to interview Jim Pope, who again was one of the last Coast Guard keepers a Whaleback. The interview with Jim Pope was shot at the Kittery Historical Naval Museum, and I want to thank the museum's director, Kim Sanborn.
1: The interview you are about to hear is edited from a video interview that was shot by Jim White, who is a video professional who was kind enough to shoot the interview on video and to allow us to use the audio for this podcast. Jim has worked closely with the Wood Island Lifesaving Station Association, which was the subject of one of our recent episodes. Jim Pope was born in Scarborough, Maine in 1938. He's a bit of a local legend and has made appearances at a number of events for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses.
0: So let's listen to my interview with Jim Pope, former Coast Guard keeper of Whaleback Lighthouse, now. When were you assigned to Whaleback Lighthouse and did you have any say in your assignment to Whaleback Lighthouse?
2: Early 60, in the fall. And I had mutuals with the kids from North Berwick. He went to the ship I was on, and I went from the ship to Whaleback. And I finished my tour of duty and got discharged from Whaleback down in Gloucester, Mass. They needed a lightkeeper, and they wanted somebody kind of familiar with the area, and I was it. Do you remember any
0: of the names of the other guys who were at Whaleback with you?
2: Yes, I do. I remember William Beasley. He was a second-class engineman and he was a Ridge Runner from South Carolina, and he could make the best bacon-powder biscuits you ever ate. And I can remember Griffin. He was a second-class engine man, and took care of all the engines, uh, uh, you know, the diesels to run the air compressors, uh, the Kohler generators to charge the batteries. and. I was out there with Alan Peterson, a Norwegian. He was a Danish kid, so his last name ended in E-N. And he got transferred from Wheelback and went out to run White Island as chief engineer out there, second class. But we got along good and everything, and I went to Illinois and it was the last time I ever went there. He worked my tail off out there and beans, being from Maine. That was my last trip.
0: Uh, can you describe what the boat landing facilities were like uh, when you were at Whaleback?
2: They were really good. Everything was still in shape. All the rip was were still there. Some of the granite was still fastened with them big U-hooks that go down and hold things where it's rough. And uh, we had a cement ramp pitched up just a little bit. You could pull it right up on at high tide. You could pull it right up under the falls, and get haul the boat out of the water. Cause you couldn't leave it in the water, or you didn't have a boat in the morning. It worked out good. It was a good slip. And it was on the northwest side of the light, so we were facing the Coast Guard base in there in Greenland. I mean in Newcastle, and it was you had to keep it clean, cause it got wicked. Slippery in the summertime from all the you know, grass and stuff that grows in the ocean You put the Clorox to her brush her down once in a while and you could get in and out of the boat without getting killed you know?
0: Can you describe the boat you had?
2: We had we had a just plain basic 16 foot Amesbury skiff Painted white with the u.s. Coast Guard on it and a buff interior and she rode good when I went out there, we didn't have an engine, so I used to come in and go out with the tide. You know, I'd go in the Frisbee's, row in the Frisbee's with the incoming tide. I bought grub at Frisbee's, or if, if I went to Portsmouth to the uh, First National over there in Portsmouth, I'd use the barber's car, and he'd let me take his car and go over and get our grub and back out to the light.
0: You just had the one boat?
2: We had that one boat that we hung from them davits. You know, there was uh, six blocks on each rope. So it was six to one. In other words, it took me one pound of effort to lift six pounds of boat. So we had no trouble. There weren't no winches already then. It was Norwegian steam right there.
0: Let's talk about the, uh, the fog signal tower. Of course, the, uh, you had the cast iron fog signal tower that stood right next to the lighthouse until, like you said, 1969, when they took it down. Can you describe uh, what was inside that uh, fog signal tower?
2: You had your air compressors, which were uh, Worthington air compressors, five belts. You had two of them. We pumped uh, 150 pounds of air up to the horn, because they had taken the horn from where the can was on the back and put them up front facing White Island, facing out to the shoals. And uh, this was just after they'd built Pease Air Force Base. And once they got Pease built, they put up a radar tower over the Newcastle, and they used that as an approach. And when we couldn't see the red lights up on top of the radar tower, we automatically started the foghorn.
0: How much work was it to get the, the foghorn going?
2: You had you, We had two 271 GMC diesels, and we'd run one diesel to work the air compressors to pump the air up to the horn, and then the next time it shot in, we'd use the other one. That way you could maintain your your diesel engines and stuff, and that's how it worked.
0: What were the conditions like when the, when the horn was going inside that tower?
2: It was wicked hot. I've seen 140 degrees. You had one little porthole in the side of the tank facing Newcastle, about a 10- or 12-inch porthole, and you had to leave the back door open to the light so that the wind could, and the air could come in and go up to the second story where the engines were stored. It was hot. And there was one summer, we ran for one solid month without shutting the horn off.
0: What about noise?
2: You got used to it. I'd have to listen to make sure everything was going. After a while, you really did.
0: Do you think it affected your hearing?
2: I got hearing aids. The first horn, the Doe Bell horn, which was on the tank with a southerly wind or a southeast wind. It could be almost heard as plain as day in downtown Dover. And then, of course, we moved the horns, or they moved the horns, just before I was out there at the end of World War II, up to the front of the tower toward White Island. You could hear them good, but you, you, you if the wind was really just right and it was quiet, I think you could still hear them downtown, downtown Dover, because I could hear Amtrak. When the Boston and Maine goes through at 11 o'clock, 11.30, on a real calm day, I could hear them blowing from the Dover gates.
0: Let's talk about the uh, living quarters inside the lighthouse.
2: Well, when you went up from the, yeah, you know, coming in the back door, you went up a deck, and then you went up the stairs, which were fastened onto the inside of the wall. You went up, there was a steel door there. You opened the door and you went into the galley. When you went in the galley, we had a all apartment sized galley stove. We had a TV that we had, 12 or 14-inch TV we had hanging from the roof, from the overhang of the next room up, because there wasn't room to have a thing to set it on. And you had four galley chairs. Two were tucked in back on the table, so they were against the wall. So we ate in like shifts. You know, two guys in a whack, two guys at a town, eight. And then you went around a little bit and you had the window, and then we had a pot-bellied one-wick oil burner that heated the whole light right to the top, except it never got there. And uh, then there was a galley sink with a hand pump with a leather on it that when it froze in the winter you had to lift the top of the sister went off and go down and chop a hole in the ice if you wanted coffee <laughs> and then you come around we had two big easy chairs that fit just in there and uh, you were back out of, outside again going up another deck up to the uh, office which was facing frisbee store
0: where was your bedroom
2: i was the third floor up i was above the office me and the fireman slept upstairs we had bug beds Right under the lamp, it was right under, we had a, and above us was a room where we stored all the gear for running the light. Like during the war they had a a cuckoo clock arrangement with weights and you could run the light on weights. All that stuff was stored there and then you had a hatch up through to where the lens was and by then you were 70 feet high. What kind of
0: furniture was in your bedroom?
2: We each had one small desk to put your uh, dresser drawers, to put your clothes in, and you had your bunk, which was two two bunks, one on top of the other. And it was as the light went up, the beds, the rooms got smaller, and it was tight. You didn't spend much time in your room.
0: So, uh, when you were there, uh, how many men were assigned? the lighthouse and how many were there at a time
2: there was a crew of four and when we went out there i went out when it was my turn to be on i went out for 24 days on six off no running water no shower no toilet all the short lobsters you could eat i still like spam i still like deviled ham and here I am. I'm still going. But the full crew was four guys.
0: Right, but there weren't typically four there. No, there, was three, there a, were three. three at a time. Three at a time. With one on shore leave.
2: With one, wherever he was headed.
0: Were any of your supplies delivered, or do you have to go ashore to get get all your? We had
2: to go ashore. To, the only thing delivered was gasoline, mm-hmm. by the 44-footer. We had to go. Uh, we had to go ashore, to get the gr- grub and Frisbees had a meat cutter, and we could get by, but when we really got our money, and we pooled it all together, the Coast Guard gave us $66.10 a month per person. We'd pool that money and split it up between four of us, and I'd usually take the 16-foot skiff and go in and uh, tie up and borrow the barber's car and go over and grub up, Couple of beers now and then, and back out to the lights. Again, I had a girlfriend downtown Kittery, and the people that brought me up. I lived downtown Kittery, so we kind of knew each other, and I'd sneak in once in a while, get back before daylight, get the boat hanging back up, and look like I'd been in bed all night.
0: What did you like least about your time at Whaleback Lighthouse?
2: Really really I, there was nothing i didn't like you, you know you had your maintenance it had to be painted you had to shine the lens every day it took you two hours to shine the brass and this was almost every day if you didn't and it got dull on you 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 spent a day i'd go through a can and a half two cans of brass oil, but it wasn't brasil back then it was some other thing named like that and it was good brass polish and you had to wash the lens every day we had special uh, liquid we washed the lens every day there was a lot of work to it and the light ran on liquid mercury the ball bearings were in mercury and in the wintertime there was no heat up there and you you know you Wore scrapers out, scraping the frost off the windows once it got down to zero. And you had, the light was on a rear stand, so you could turn it up or slow it down to meet what the chart said the specs were for Whaleback. You know, two ten-second flashes every two, every one minute. I can't even remember. It's been so long since I looked at the chart.
0: Uh, I know you've told me before about how you fished out there. Could you talk about that a little yeah. bit?
2: I caught a lot of hat, especially in the fall when all the all the pollock were running. And uh, I could sit right on the the windowsill. The walls at Wellback were seven or eight feet thick. I could lay right out there. But anyway, I could go out there and hang a mackerel jig over on a fish pole and bring a nice big pollock right up the side of the tower, right into the galley, drop them in the sink, take the sides off them, drag them through egg and flour, and be eaten in a half hour. And throw the rack overboard. Either that or use it for lobster mate.
0: I think you shot a few ducks from there, too. I
2: did. We had a twenty-two out there, and I could pick them off one at a time and put the boat over and go get them, when they, uh, all the ones that were floating, and we ate uh, duck. And, we, and we've eaten seagull eggs out there from, hard, from uh, Wood Island, right across. Go over and pick them up, and bring them back and fry them up.
0: And There was no shortage of lobsters out there. No,
2: no, none at all. In fact, the lobstermen took good care of me.
0: We talk a little bit more about the light. You just said a little bit about uh, adjusting the light. Um, what was the typical process uh, for uh, for for working with the light?
2: You had to time it. It had to be timed. There was a watch all night long, and the light had to be timed. And you, you know, to a couple of times, especially when the weather was real. Summertime was great because it always stayed about the same. But when when once you got below thirty-two degrees. You had to uh, you had time it and keep an eye on your watch clock. We had a watch clock. We had a stopwatch stop watch right up there. So
0: there was somebody There was somebody on watch all night all the time?
2: Oh, yeah. Somebody was always up 24 hours a day. You had to watch the two red lights over on Odeon's Point, you know, over where number two gunboat showboy is, the radar tower there. You had to watch the weather. You had to watch everything, you know? We, got a, we get a big storm, everything in the light ran on gas, propane gas, 90-pound 90, nine, 90 bottles of propane. They were on the outside, on the catwalk, outside of the tower, on the tank, on the Garrish Island side. And whenever we got a big northeaster, I mean a big one, you had to go out and see what you had left for gas bottles because most of them were gone. Take them, rip them right off. You know, we had, you had them tied down with rope and stuff in a rack, but they were gone.
0: Now, the light was electrified by...
2: Yeah, we had a bank of batteries. We, we ran the light on batteries at night, and we charged the batteries all day long. They were 24 volt. Quiet in series, and that was on the second deck, where all the fuel tanks were, above the uh, generators and above the diesels. All of, all the fuel oil was up—kerosene, heating oil, diesel—and the gasoline was stored outside of a big, big yellow-like can, painted bright yellow. On the wall right above the galley table, we had one of them wooden telephones in a wooden box with two bells on the front of it, all varnished up, and one crank, you got the lifeboat station, two cranks, you got White Island.
0: Did you use that
2: much? Yeah, I shoot the breeze with Peterson all the time.
0: Did you ever call White
2: Island? Yeah, all the time. Peterson was, was out… When he was at White Island? He, yeah, once he got off back he went to White Island. Yeah. We catch up on everything going on.
0: So you mentioned that phone. Did you you had a, you have another phone for? Uh, no,
2: no. Uh, we had some of our flags. When the boy turned to come down, I'd give him flag signals A, B, C, D. You know, shut the hose off. It's running overboard.
0: So wait a minute. You had this crank phone for calling
2: White Island or the lifeboat station.
0: So you you had no way of calling the mainland directly?
2: Yeah, you you. I could call the lifeboat station okay. and. He would either talk or hook me, plug me in, so that it was well back. So you could? Yeah, yeah, you could. And out to the light, the only person I got out there was the lighthouse, you know, the phone in the lighthouse at White Island. And it was one of the guys, because there was a crew of four there, too.
0: Now, you mentioned you had a small TV there. Was there much reception on the TV?
2: It was good when nothing was running. But when the fog signal would run, the picture would go to postage size, you know, because it put such a drain on the, on the pot on the power.
0: So you probably didn't watch a whole lot of TV.
2: No, not really. I I built a couple of models, ship models and stuff, and we played a lot of cribbage, you know, and you was busy, you know, you had decks that had to be painted, you know, that brickwork going all the way up through didn't get painted by itself.
0: Anything else you did for entertainment? I know, again, you didn't have a whole lot of time for, for that.
2: I'd go over and get a good feed of flounder, hang a line, would take that Amesbury skiff and go over and hang a line on Fort Foster Dock. And I had a five point spear on a seven foot handle. I could fill a boat, I could fill the Amesbury skiff with flounder. So we ate plenty of flounder and we ate plenty of fish and we put as much of that $66 in our pocket.
0: So the $66 was above your, your pay?
2: Yes, yeah, it was added on. They threw us a check, each one of us extra, above our... I think my pay back then was around $95 a month. We had a kerosene heater, one wick in the galley right there with a s- stack that went right to the top of the light with a Charlie Noble on it. And the decks in the lighthouse going up through were steel. And the pipe going up to the stove, up to the Charlie Noble, was galvanized. And they rusted off. One deck, the galley, between the galley and uh, the second, the office, the pipe rusted off. And on a calm night, flat ass calm, we used to get wicked sick. We didn't know what it was. You had to go out You had to go out and sit on the rocks outside, no matter whether it was 10 above or not, you couldn't stay in the light. And finally, one of the guys got hurt, and we had to call a 40-footer to come out and get him, and they took him over to the Navy at the Portsmouth Hospital. And the next day, Verathis, a plumber up on uh, Isley to the street, was out there replacing the pipe all the way up through the light, right to the very top, plus a new Charlie Noble.
0: Charlie Noble, you're saying? Yeah. I don't know what that is.
2: It's a vent that turns in the wind and sucks it. It causes a big draft and it sucks the heat right up the smokestack. Well, it sucks the heat out, it sucks the smoke right out of the stove. And it had a grease fitting on it, and they galvanized. You can still buy them, Charlie Noble.
0: So did they have that kerosene heater there the whole time you were there? Did they finally get rid of that?
2: No, we had kerosene till, we got up, till I got off the light. You had to trim the wick once in a while, make it burn. You could tell by the color of the fire in the little window on that kerosene burner. The refrigerator was gas, and every time you opened the back door to the light to get out to where the boat was, out to the ramp, the pilot would blow out. And it was a bitch of a job lighting a pilot. Half the time we, we, we didn't use a refrigerator in the winter. We just set it out on the windowsill
0: when it stayed cold. Do you remember any big storms that happened while you were there?
2: Yeah, we were, it was a good light. It was safe. But the noise was unbelievable because all the great big granite blocks that were at the base of the light had all broken loose. From them big hooks that held them and they banging all night long, wicked loud. I could go right up on top of that light, seventy feet up, and in the big Nor'easter, we had one or two of them every, you know, every couple of years. The waves you you could get soaked up there. The wave would go right over the top of the tower. But the reason it did that was because 2KR, two two seaboy kits rock, there was a 12-foot spot behind the boy, and when the waves come in from the shoals and came back together between that run between the boy and the islands out there, they'd climb straight up in the air and they go straight over Wilbeck. So uh, I'd seen it all. <laughs> we did our work and the light always ran and uh, we shut it off 15 minutes after sunrise and turned it on 15 minutes before sunrise and the fog on went on when it got real hazy and finally when it was thick it didn't shut it off. You know and everything worked out good. We had a good crew. We all got together. We all got along good. You know between Baisley and me and Yates and the kid from Massachusetts. I did most of the boat work because I was used to the river and stuff, and I knew the currents and stuff, and it made a big difference.
0: So you left uh, Whale well back in 62. Yeah. When did you leave the Coast Guard?
2: I got out the last week in August of 60, 58, 62. I did my four years, and I went down and got discharged, and I was done. Sold them back 60 days worth of leave and said, see you later.
0: And you went on to a, a long career as a tugboat captain.
2: I did. Once I got off back, I took a trip around the United States with one of my Navy buddies. He went in the Navy, and I went in the Coasties. We packed an MGB and two sea bags, and we wound up in Mexico. We wound up in Canada. We wound up in Quebec. Came back. He went to work on the Navy Yard. I went over and went to work on the tugs. I've had a good time wherever I go.
0: Let me ask you: uh, If you had the chance, would you be a lighthouse keeper again? If you could do it over again, would you? Uh, would you do that again?
2: Yeah, I would. I would. It would. it be nice to have a little more room than walking around in a circle for for four, three or four years. You know, like a what was it, 16 feet, 18 feet at the most on the inside. And you was always climbing up and down, up and down. Everything it was up and down, seventy feet. But you did it. I did it.
0: Well it seems like you're you're proud of the that period of
2: Hey, I've done things nobody'll ever do in the world again. That's how I feel. How many guys can say they was a lighthouse keeper? How many guys can run a tugboat for twenty five years? Especially on this river. Thanks. I always I, I always drove a Corvette all my life. I love to have fun. And I might be 80 now, but I ain't dead yet. That's my life right there.
1: People can learn more about the American Lighthouse Foundation at lighthousefoundation.org and about friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses at portsmouthharborlighthouse.org. Whaleback Lighthouse can be seen from lots of places on shore from both the Maine and New Hampshire sides of the Piscataqua River. The best place is Fort Foster in Kittery, which is a public park owned by the town of Kittery. There's a pier there that provides a great view of both Whaleback Lighthouse and the Wood Island Life Saving Station. On the New Hampshire side of the Piscataqua, you can get a good view from Odeorn Point in Rye or from Great Island Common in Newcastle.
0: Also, if people come to our open houses at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse in Newcastle, which uh, run from spring through fall on Sunday afternoons, you can see Whaleback Lighthouse about a mile away from Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. And also from spring through fall, there are lots of sightseeing cruises that provide excellent views of Whaleback Lighthouse. The Isles of Shoals Steamship Company and Portsmouth Harbor Cruises out of Portsmouth both go close to it on a regular basis. And also Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses works with Granite State Whale Watch out of Rye, New Hampshire for occasional special lighthouse cruises that go very close to several of the local lighthouses. Watch for news about those cruises at PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org.
1: Thanks again to our guest today, Jim Pope. Thanks also to Jim White and Kim Sanborn for making the interview possible. Thank you to all the staff, volunteers, and members of the U.S. Lighthouse Society.
0: Check out uslhs.org for information about the U.S. Lighthouse Society and everything it has to offer, including domestic and international tours, the Lighthouse Passport Program, the J. Candace Clifford Research Catalog, and much more. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting it by becoming a member of the U.S. Lighthouse Society.
1: You can also help us by spreading the word about this podcast on social media. Also, if you are listening on a platform that allows you to rate and review the podcast, please do. We want to get featured on the Apple Podcasts app, and the more ratings and reviews we get, the more likely that is. Someone called Giant Seagulls recently left this review on Apple Podcasts. Quote, These podcasts live up to the promise of the title, Light-hearted, They are fun to listen to, but they also contain solid material, a wonderful play on words, great history. The episodes aren't long, but they are chock-full. Bravo, Jeremy, to you and your team. These podcasts will make a great library of information about lighthouses, unquote.
0: Thank you so much, Giant Seagulls. It's much appreciated. And let me say, when you uh, say bravo to me and my team, I want to thank my team, which includes co-hosts Cindy Johnson and Michelle Shaw So thank you, Cindy. And if anybody has any ideas you'd like to share with me, uh, any ideas about interviews or features for this podcast, please write to me at jeremy at uslhs.org. Again, you can email me at jeremy at uslhs.org. And as always, thank you very much for listening and...
1: Keep a good light. Out in the dark, I'm
2: Oh,